In the 1987 movie Wall Street, Michael Douglas portrayed a character named Gordon Gecko, a multimillionaire rich tycoon who made his wealth by making illegal stock market insider trading deals. A truly wicked individual. He is someone that has no conscience and he has no guilty feelings about the way that he has made his money. He has no guilty feelings about his personal greed. In fact, he's proud of his greed. And later on in the movie, as you see in this clip, at a stock market meeting, he ends up proclaiming his greed to the stockholders by saying the following, and I quote, greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. What a philosophy. This is a person who has absolutely no compassion on his fellow human being. And when we watch the things that he does in this movie, and when we listen to the things that he says in this movie, we get angry. We want to see this guy get caught. We want to see him get punished. This wicked, rotten, rich guy with all his money. Yet, there's not a single person here in this room today who is not in some way, shape, or form touched by the need to acquire money. We all need to have money. We all need to be able to provide the things necessary to sustain life. We cannot escape it. We cannot avoid it. We need to make some money. But yet when we take a look at those individuals that seemingly have it all, those that achieve heights, uh, monetary heights that we could never possibly imagine, and you can fill in your own name for whoever you would uh, see that would fit that description. When we take a look at someone like that, we really need to take a look at ourselves also and give ourselves a little bit of a personal check for our own personal greed. Because greed is a very powerful thing. Greed can affect us in really strange ways. Greed can affect the way that we think. It can affect the way that we feel. It can affect the way that we act. In fact, in the latest and greatest television game shows like Deal or No Deal, they are dependent upon your personal greed to keep you watching the TV show to find out how does the game end. So how are we supposed to think about all of this? As we look at the year 2007, how are we supposed to think about wealth? How can we gain more control over our attitudes and our behaviors over, over wealth and about money. What does the Bible say about it? Well, we're going to take a look and find out. If you brought your Bibles from home, we're going to look at the book of James, and you can turn to it. It follows right after the book of Hebrews, which is a large book in the Bible, in the New Testament. If you find Hebrews and go a little bit to the right, you'll come to James. Otherwise, if you'd like to look in the Pew Bible, you'll find the passage on page 1198, 1198 in the Pew Bibles. And we'll also show the passage in the slides overhead. Now, this is a really harsh word that we're going to hear today. It might actually shock some of you. It's not the kind of thing that we normally hear from Scripture. But James has something to say to us today. Here we go. Now, listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted. 
and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Pretty shocking language. Now, the person that wrote these hard words identifies himself in chapter 1. He's James. And there's been some debate as to the exact identity of this James. By and large, though, the majority consensus is that this is James, the brother of Jesus, one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church in the first century. And he's writing to Jewish Christians who are living outside of Palestine. And the message that he's giving these people is general ideas and aspects of the Christian faith, including certain social justice issues like this one today between the wealthy and the non-wealthy. And what he's trying to communicate to his readers is that they should not have the same kind of mindset about wealth that the wealthy have. And for our purposes today, the main idea is this. If our mindsets are based on biblical values, then we'll have rule over our attitudes and our behaviors regarding wealth. You see, it's never really about the money. It's about what's going on in our heart. It's what's going on in our minds. That's what God is interested in. He's interested in our mindset. Now, we've already mentioned the necessity that we have to put food on the table and a roof over our head, clothes on our back and the like. But it's also possible when we're in the, when we're in the process of acquiring those things, that that and that alone can become the sole preoccupation of our life to the exclusion of everything else. And there's a problem with that. And the problem is this. There is nothing on this earth that is going to last forever, including us. Take a look around the room here. Take a look around. Just look to your right, look to your left. Take a look. Everybody here. In 100 years, 100 years from now, we're all gone. Nothing on this earth lasts forever. Think about it. At one time, there were the seven wonders of the ancient world. We don't talk about them very often anymore. We used to have them. There was the Great Pyramid in Giza. There were the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Temples of Artemis, Statue of Zeus at Olympia, the Mausoleum of Mausolus, the Colossus of Rhodes, and the Lighthouse of Alexandria. Today, all of them, except for the Pyramid, is gone. And even the pyramid is falling apart due to erosion. I've been there. It's not as it once was. And Jesus knew about this. He also gave us a warning about accumulating riches on earth, but not having riches in heaven. In Matthew 6, 19 through 20, he says this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy. And where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, why is Jesus so interested in money? In fact, if you add up all the times he speaks about money, he speaks more about money than he does about heaven and hell combined. 
Jesus is so interested in money because we're interested in money. And oftentimes the way that we treat other people and the other kinds of attitudes that we have are reflected in the ways that we think about money. And that's why Jesus is interested in it. And James picks right up where Jesus lets, let, leaves off and he applies the same concept to the rich people of that day. We go back to our text. What does it say? Starting again at verse 1, he says, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth is rotted. And moths have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver are corroded like the pyramids. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Now, these rich people here that, Jesus, that James is talking about are not rich Christians. There are three places in the book of James where James is addressing rich people. And two out of the three times that he mentions the rich, they are not rich Christians. These are the Gordon Geckos of that day. These are the people that would do anything to make a buck and to profit by it. And what James is condemning here is that they don't have a mindset that is kingdom-oriented. It is earthly-oriented. They've acquired riches that will not last forever. And additionally, they're ignoring the fact that their riches will have no value for them after their death. That is not a kingdom mindset. Now, a number of years ago, I had an opportunity to visit a, a dear elderly woman who had a, a wonderfully large and, and well-furnished house, nice, beautiful paintings on the walls, beautiful carpets, expensive glass and chandeliers hanging from the ceiling. And when I, when I remarked to her how beautiful I thought her house was, she told me her story. See, this was supposed to be the retirement home for her and her husband. And they took all of their wealth, all of their savings over time, and they poured it into this place where they were going to spend the rest of their life in the lap of luxury. Well, you can guess what happened. Shortly after everything was finished off, the house is built, it's all painted, the paint is dried, the pictures are hung, the carpeting is laid, and all of the furniture has been moved in. And what happens but her husband dies of a heart attack on the spot. And all of that wealth, how does that help him now? God wants us to have a mindset that is kingdom-oriented so that we won't store up treasures here on earth and not have riches in heaven. And if we have that kind of a mindset, a mindset that is kingdom-oriented, then that's going to show itself in the way that we interact with one another, with people every day. And that brings us to our second idea, and that's this. We should have a mindset that is integrity-oriented. Now, have you ever had this kind of an experience where you go to either a restaurant or a fast food chain or a store and the cashier gives you back the wrong change to your favor? Ooh, I made some money. What, what did you do with the money? Did you keep it? Or did you give it back? Or, an even worse example, have you ever hired somebody and not pay them everything that they were owed? Or did you not pay them at all? You see, Jesus said that we were going to be the light of the world in Matthew 5.14. You are the light of the world. As Christians, we're supposed to be an example to the world. Well, what kind of example will we be setting to the world if the ways that we behave lack integrity? We need to have a mindset of integrity. Take a look again. What does the passage say here? This is verse 4 now. Look, 
The wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. James is condemning the rich here for not paying for service, not paying for services rendered. In fact, he's saying this sin is so great that the wages themselves cry out to God as a testimony. What this means is we need to pay our bills. We need to live in integrity. We need to have integrity. Now, something that's not well known in our church is for over 20 years, I worked as a professional piano tuner. In fact, I work as a warranty serviceman for one of the largest retailer music industries in the upper Midwest. And I also had a private practice, and it was massive. I was a master of the craft. And my clientele at one time stretched all the way from Victoria, Minnesota to the Hudson, Wisconsin border. I tuned a lot of pianos. And in all of that time, and with all of those clients, there was only one that didn't pay me. Only one. Would you like to know who it was? <laughs> it was a church. In fact, it was a Baptist church in downtown St. Paul that did not pay me. Christians did not pay me. Now, can you imagine the cry that went out from that church for not paying the lowly piano tuner for servicing the instrument of worship in that place? What kind of a testimony is that to the world? We need to have a mindset that is integrity-oriented. Now, the third one is, is kind of difficult. And the, the third idea is this. We need to have a mindset of non-opulence. This is really hard for Americans. It's not a hard thing for people in third world countries. If you were to go to somebody in Haiti or out in the Congo and say, well, you know, as Christians, we need to have a mindset of non-opulence. No problem. Look where I'm living. I'm in a shack. But today, America is the richest nation on the planet. And daily, day after day, more and more, it seems as though the game of keeping up with the Joneses is becoming a national pastime. I mean, really, if our neighbor gets something new, do we have to get something new too? If your neighbor puts a trout pond in the backyard, do you have to put a trout pond in your backyard? I actually know somebody that has a, a trout pond in his front yard. What does that say about him? You see, opulence, opulence is simply a display. It's a display of wealth, affluence, or one's riches, prosperity, or money. But that kind of a display comes with a price. And the price that we pay for opulence is that the acquiring of the opulence and the display of opulence becomes a means to an end all to itself and to no avail. Take a look again what James says. Back in our text again. Where are we here? Okay, verse 5. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. James is saying that all the rich have accomplished by living opulently is to ready themselves for their own slaughter. They become like Ebenezer Scrooge, whose only interest is to make more money, make more money, make more money, and make more money. That doesn't lead anywhere. They've done nothing to benefit anyone else, and their own doom is certain. In 1984, Jim Baker led a television ministry called the PTL Club. It was wildly popular. They had many, many viewers. 
And these people would send all kinds of money to the PTL club. And much of this money ended up illegally in Jim Baker's own bank account. Now, you would think that he'd keep this thing quiet, don't you think? Instead, we saw all kinds of pictures of the opulence that he lived in. Everything from gold-plated faucets to crystal chandeliers. Even the doghouse was better furnished than some people's homes. And in the end, it all came crashing down. And the day that the police arrived at the front door, they found Jim Baker on the floor in a fetal position, begging them, please don't take me away. His opulence, unable to save him. God wants us to have a mindset of non-opulence. Now, we've, if we successfully have developed those kinds of mindsets in our own life, something wonderful happens. We begin to focus less on ourselves and we start to be more sensitive to the needs of our fellow human being, which brings us to our last idea, and that's this. God wants us to have a mindset of grace. I love that word, grace. God wants us to have a mindset of grace. Another way of looking at it is we need to be generous in mercy to one another. That's what God wants us to have. If we're to look at the modern-day Gordon Geckos who've cheated the public, you'll find that they all have one thing in common, and that's this. They don't have grace for anybody. They don't have mercy for anybody. They don't care what it costs anybody else for them to get what they want. And a perfect example of this is the Enron scandal. When you see how the owners of this company treated the business and treated the people underneath them, you can see in the next slide what happened to the company. It went straight down to a value of zero. And there were all kinds of people that were put into the poorhouse of this. They had no compassion for their fellow human being. This is wrong, folks. And if we take a look at what the text says here, you'll see that this problem was in existence also in James's day. One more time in our text, James 5, verse 6. You have, condemned an innocent, uh, you have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Now, in the day that James was living, it was possible for rich people to use the court system to prevent somebody from making a, a, a living. And if, if that were to happen, a person would literally be unable to provide for themselves. And we, we see the word condemned here. This indicates that this is exactly what was going on in James's day, where, where rich people would prevent others from making a living. And if this would happen to somebody, they surely would end up dying, not being able to provide for themselves. In fact, James is so serious about this point that the Greek word that he uses here for murder in English translates meaning murder. He says we shouldn't do this. He's saying that when we are not generous in mercy, when we do not have grace for one another, it's as though we are committing an act against one of God's Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. Now, you'd like to think that we only see those kinds of things happening in the secular world, only in the business world. We surely would never see something like that happen in the body of Christ, would we? Unfortunately, that's not always true. 
Now, this currently is my fourth church on a church staff. And prior to this, my wife and I were members of two other churches that we were heavily involved in. That makes six churches total that we've been extremely involved with. And in three out of those six churches, that makes one half. In half of those churches that we've been a part of, there's been at least one incident where at least one pastor was told that he had to leave his pastorate, even though he had done nothing wrong and the church was not in any kind of financial problem. It made no difference. The pastor had no choice. He had to leave with no recourse but to accept summary dismissal. And in one case, the pastor ended up having to sell furniture in a department store before finally being able to get another pastoring job in Alaska. In Alaska. I don't need to tell you that that's wrong, do I? It's wrong. It's not biblical. And we can do better than that. In fact, we would do very well if we'd follow a different example. There's a man whose name is Truett Cathy, an unusual name for an unusual man. He's the owner and operator of the Chick-fil-A restaurants down south. And from the very beginning, his policy has been to never be open for business on Sunday mornings. Do you want to know why? Rather than going for the bottom line, he stays closed on Sundays so that his employees can go to church and spend the day with their families. Here is a man who is generous in mercy. And he has all the money in the world. All the money in the world. Well, how can we help to develop some of these mindsets this coming week? Here's some ideas you might want to try. First of all, when we're contemplating making a significant purchase, and we all do, but when you're figuring out, well, do I want to get this or can I put this off, that kind of thing, ask yourself, is this this a long-range kind of a purchase? Is this a spur-of-the-moment purchase? Does it have any kind of eternal value to it? That way we start thinking more in terms of of kingdom mindsets. Then secondly, sometime this week, check to see, do do you owe anybody any money? If you do, this might be a good week to pay them. And then lastly, if we've neglected to show mercy to someone, this might be a good week to find them and apologize to them. Say, you know what, I... I I didn't show you very much grace this week, and I'm sorry, and please forgive me. When we do those kinds of things, when we we develop a mindset that's kingdom-oriented and integrity-oriented, we start to grow, we start to gain more control over our our attitudes and our our behaviors towards wealth. So, to summarize, if we're able to develop these four mindsets— a mindset that is kingdom-oriented, a mindset that is integrity-oriented, a mindset that is non-opulent, a mindset that is generous in mercy, K-I-N-G. The title of the message today is Having the Mind of a King. If we have mindsets that are based on biblical values, then we can have rule over our attitudes and our behaviors concerning wealth. 
See, God doesn't want to prevent us from acquiring wealth. But he does want us to have the right mindset about it. And since every good thing that we acquire in this life comes from God in the first place, the best way that we can make use of our wealth is to do so in such a way that it will bring God glory. Let's pray that that will be true for each of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And thank you this day for the opportunity to learn from it. Lord, help us to learn from it now. And we'll give you the thanks and the praise for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.